Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk. We have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy House, and I am the host. Hello. Carl Nichols, a.k.a. Buffalo Nichols, found out that he liked playing guitar way more than anything else when he was around 12 years old. He took his older sister's guitar, but she wasn't using it, and started obsessively learning to play. He'd listen to songs 200 times in a row to get it right. Very soon, he was outperforming his peers as a young teen. He started playing gigs around town in many different bands and many different styles, overextending himself. He was perhaps best known for being in the folk duo Nickel and Rose, who released music from 2017 to 2019. He eventually got burnt out and realized he wanted to play music that resonated with him. He gave himself a break and went overseas to West Africa and Europe. There he discovered there was a way to connect tradition and music with modernism. Carl uses the blues on his self-titled album to tell and express black stories on the black experience. He chose the stage name Buffalo Nichols because he was fascinated with the Buffalo Soldiers. He actually learned his grandfather was part of an all-black infantry in the Korean War, also called the Buffalo Soldiers. The writing process for the album was a new venture for Carl. Normally, he works on songs slowly and takes his time. He's more of what you'd call a cat friend, even though he prefers dogs and he's allergic to cats. For this album, he just let the songs flow out of him without overthinking or over-editing himself. The end result is a raw record from someone who's pushing himself outside of his comfort zone. However, don't be surprised if he abandons that free-flowing process in the future... Let's take a listen to a song from Carl's debut album, the Buffalo Nichols self-titled release. This is Lost and Lonesome, and then we'll get to our conversation with Carl Nichols, a.k.a. Buffalo Nichols, on Basic Folk. Carl, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so you were born in Houston and raised in Milwaukee. Is the neighborhood you grew up in called the North End? Uh, no, it's just like referred to as the North Side of Milwaukee. The North Side. Oh, okay. Mm. All right, cool. 
So what was your family structure like growing up and where was music within your family? I grew up with my mom and my siblings. I have two um, older, much older siblings, so they weren't around as much in my childhood or my, my upbringing. But uh, music was just something like everyone in my family listened to different styles of music. So I always had this, well, I, I feel like for a, you know, for a five-year-old, I guess I had a pretty broad sense of, of music. And that was sort of the beginning, just being exposed to a lot of different stuff, but nothing formal. I never did any, I think I'd had like, you know, recorder in elementary school, but never had any formal training or anything in, in school like that. Were there other musicians in your family? Uh, not really. My sister started, who's, she's two years older than me. Um, she started playing guitar before I did. Oh yeah, I heard you stole her guitar. Well, I don't know if I stole it. It was just there. And I played it. She wasn't using it. <laughs> yeah, at that point, like, you know, she was serious about it for a little bit, but it was just like a, a hobby after a, a year or so. So then I started picking it up and, and I guess I just never put it down. How influential was uh, your older sister? And then I don't know if your two older siblings would ever stop by and, you know, share music or share different aspects of like their interests with you. How influential was that? Yeah, my older sister, Jasmine, was, you know, the first person to really introduce me to, to, to different kinds of music. I think, you know, up until I was about 10 years old, everything I got was pretty much from MTV. So it was either like, you know, pop punk or pop music or new metal was pretty big at the time. What, what generation MTV was this, the turn of the century? Yeah, this is like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Ooh. A rough yeah. time for music. It was, it was rough. Rough time but, for you know, mainstream. It's only gotten worse, so <laughs> I feel like I, I dodged a bullet. But um, my sister kind of introduced me to the music that was outside of the mainstream, because this was also the, the mix CD era. So mm -hmm. she would bring a, a lot of mix CDs and also like samplers. I don't know if labels are still doing this, probably not. But labels used to make like sampler CDs and they'd be floating around everywhere. So I just, yeah, it opened up my work, my musical world a lot. So you weren't raised particularly religious. Is that correct? No, I'm not. I mean, less than particularly, there was no, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any sense of religion until I went to school and people were talking about it. And I was like, I don't even know what what they're saying. And then people started getting mad at me when I told them I didn't believe in God. I was like, I didn't, nobody told me. I didn't know. That must have been so weird. Yeah, well, it wasn't really weird. It was just like another thing. I was like, everybody's into this thing and I don't get it. Add it mm. to the list. But it sounds like there was gospel music playing in the house and... No, not in the house. That was just a... No, I think it was just a... Uh, something that I sort of was on the periphery of in my neighborhood, you know, or mm. just around the city. I knew of people who played gospel music, but there was there was none of that happening in my house. Well, all, like taking all this in, um, particularly like in your neighborhood and then with your family members and with your mom, like how the adults in your life presented black music and the black experience to you as a kid and like what resonated with you within like what they were teaching you either like instinctively or intentionally um yeah it was most of it was definitely like i always had this uh sense of of black music and an appreciation for it but i also was you know 
really interested in, in what people like to call white music, you know. And I would get, you know, I would get stuff at shows from white people, you know, wondering why I was there. And then I'll go to school and get made fun of for listening to white music from, you know, black kids. But I always was like, you know, even when I was like 11 or 12 years old, I would look at like Jimi Hendrix and Bad Brains and like kind of gave me this sense of that I was part of something or that it made sense, you know, because you need that kind of validation when you're a kid, I think. But as far as having this real strong appreciation for like, that was just like something to make me feel better. But really appreciating it, that came a little bit later, you know, my my later teens and 20s. Mm. You found the guitar when you were 11 or you took it from your sister when you were 11. Um, and with the guitar, you found something that you truly loved. Um, and it sounds like you stopped doing any other activities, sports, playing video games, stuff like that. Can you talk about what it was like for you to find like pleasure in your life or have fun in your life as a kid before you found the guitar and then after? I remember I was on a Little League team. I must have been like, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. And I was not trying very hard because I just it didn't interest me that much. But, you know, it was this kind of toxic environment where the parents are in it for themselves and they want this weird glory from children. Mm. And one of the like, parent coaches came over me and he was like because I was sitting on the the bleachers like playing a Game Boy or something because you know it was more interesting than than baseball to me but he came over and tried to like give me a pep talk and like relate it to video games he's like yeah when you're out there on the mound just pretend you're playing one of these games or something like that like this is really Mm. weird that you you think you can get me to like this game by like because I didn't care that much about video games either I was just bored and at that point, I was like, I don't like any of this stuff, but I'm just doing it. It's a weird kind of thing to put together in your head as a child. But I was like, none of this stuff really interests me, but I haven't really figured out any alternative. And then as soon as I found music, I was like, this is actually, it was the first time in my life where I was like, I actually want to be doing this. So the guitar, why the guitar just clicked and worked for you? You said you can't really like put your finger on it. You've been trying to think about that and figure it out and it kind of feels like an extension and a form of expression for you so like if you don't play the guitar for a while like do you feel kind of weird and um in general what is your relationship with this instrument that allows you to express yourself so deeply what has that relationship been like Mm -hmm. yeah i I think i do I'm, i'm realizing it more as time goes on when i don't play guitar for a while or do anything musical, I just start to get, well, I get depressed, really. And it's always like, it's not something that I'm aware of. It's just like, I just put the two together and I'm like, oh, maybe I should just pick up a guitar or something, see if I'll I'll feel better. But I don't really, yeah, like I said, I, I can't, I don't really understand what it is. And maybe it's just like a, you know, just because I spent so much of my, you know, adolescence with it it might just be something that comforts me because it's familiar um and and also before I was like you know writing songs I was just a guitar player so that was kind of it became my voice and it was like the tool for expressing myself so I think I've it's you know it's been a part of me for most of my life now so it's it's just this thing that I can't get away from Mm. can you talk about um expressing yourself through guitar playing versus expressing yourself through songwriting and through singing? Yeah, um, I think that's something that I'm still trying to figure out myself because I, and maybe it's just a matter of 
um, time, but I feel like I can express a wider range of emotions with the guitar that I can with the song. Because I, the song, songwriting for me feels more, it's more closely related to the kind of person that I am, like, in front of other people, mm. which is like, um, I don't know, depressed and sarcastic. So that's, that's kind of how my songwriting is. But when I play guitar, I can, you know, kind of, I feel more comfortable expressing different, different emotions, you know, these sort of more playful ideas. I can do that on guitar, but I don't, I don't feel comfortable writing songs like that. And I also don't really want to, you know, so it's like, and I'm glad now that I'm doing more of both because I feel, it feels like more well-rounded kind of thing for me. And I, I feel better for it. Mm. It's like your guitar playing is your extroverted side and your songwriting is your introverted side. Yes, exactly. And I, I'm still getting more comfortable, you know, sharing songs and all that with people, but I've always, I've never really had much of a problem getting on a stage and, and playing guitar. It just feels like, mm. yeah, it's like, it's, it's just a different version of me. You know? hmm. um, have you ever heard the expression, like, you're a cat friend or you're a dog friend? Yes, yes, I've heard yeah. about that. You, you seem like a cat friend. I, yeah, I'm, I'm allergic to cats, but... Like Like a slow burn, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I'm kind of like that myself. Um, But I'm wondering, like, it must be, like, kind of hard sometimes to, or at least when you first started to, like, perform on stage, what was that live performance experience like for you at first, and how has that evolved for you? Yes, I'm glad you asked, because I... Again, another thing that I've been, been struggling with a lot of things lately. <laughs> That's one of them. Um, I, I think I started. So I guess to to build the timeline, I'm I'm thirty now. I started playing guitar when I was like twelve, and I started like really performing like regularly when I was like seventeen or eighteen. And I would say for the first five years of of performing, I just hated it. And at that time, I was just playing mm-hmm. guitar. I wasn't singing in any bands, and I just it was not fun. It made me kind of miserable. And I still don't really understand why other than like just being very, you know, not very social and, and being having a lot of anxiety. But I did it anyway because I just really wanted to play music. And it was not fun. <laughs> it really wasn't fun. Mm-hmm. And I would like I was I started playing in bars when I was really young. And, you know, I never had any issues because as soon as the last note was played, I was gone. Like, I would just pack up my stuff and, and yeah, leave. I just didn't, yeah, I didn't want to be out there. And I think part of that was, was because I was just so uncomfortable, just because I was too young. And I also was just playing music that didn't really mean that much to me. It was just like, mm. it was more of like a study, like learning how to play different styles on guitar. But I didn't have a, a really strong connection with the music. So it wasn't until I started learning or pra- actually practicing how to like be a more emotional player that I started to actually enjoy being on stage. Even after the stage fright ended, I just, there was a period where I just like didn't like being in front of people and, and playing music. But I, f- I was able to just figure out what, what the notes meant to me, you know, and it kind of made it a more pleasurable experience for me and probably for the audience too. Mm, yeah, it's like really presenting yourself in a genuine way. Yeah, I think like people like important. that. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like important or something. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Um, cool. Uh, the theme of being alone a lot throughout your life 
came up when I was really looking into, you know, your story. Um, so, like, once you found the guitar, you practiced alone. Your new song, Lost and Lonesome, is about traveling alone. You write alone. You started a new solo project after being in all these bands. What is it about being alone for you? Like, do you prefer it? Do you need it? How did you discover your need to be alone? Uh, I think I spent a lot of time alone as a child just because of just the way that I grew up. But I think it it also is, and I, I don't know, I haven't talked to a therapist about it, but it is something that is a necessity for me. Part of it is because I think my, my brain just moves kind of slowly and I need a lot of time to to think about things and you know I think you know at the end of the day I need a good chunk of time to sort of reflect and and gather my thoughts before I can before I can do it again hmm. but it's also like this sort of self-fulfilling thing where you know pl- learning to play an instrument is a pretty isolating thing you know you have to spend a lot of time alone to to get to a certain proficiency and you know then you spend more time alone to be better at the instrument and then the more time you spend alone, the the harder it is to sort of re-socialize yourself and, and spend time around people. So to make yourself feel better, you go back to your instrument, to your whatever your practice is. And, and then, you know, you, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. You don't know which came first, which I don't know. But <laughs> it's but I think even before the music, I just liked I like being alone, you know. Yeah. How do you feel about like the so- social aspects of playing music with people? I, I'm getting a little bit more used to it, especially after kind of not having it for over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it really depends. And, you know, having my a solo project has changed a lot, has changed the way I look at it a lot, because, you know, I think I don't like I don't go to I go to shows whenever I can, but I don't like go to festivals and like all this kind of thing because it's just not the kind of environment that I like to be in because I like the socializing to be based on the music and not really the other way around. Mm. So that's one thing that I I enjoy for myself and also other artists when they kind of create an environment that fits the music. So I think if the music is in is the is the like the the main attraction, mm. I think it creates a positive social environment. But if people are going for this purpose of socializing and the music is kind of an afterthought that's the kind of place i don't i don't like to be another thing i've noticed about you is that when you do something like you go hard you know um at least in my observation, like you feverishly practice guitar when you were first learning, like listening to a song hundreds of times over to learn how to play it. You very quickly outperformed your peers as a young teenager. While in Milwaukee, you were overextending yourself playing sideman to like many different types of bands. So how do you see that intense drive in yourself and how does it translate to your music both positively and negatively? Well, I think that that is really the sort of the the real theme of this of this album is that I spent maybe part of the reason why it's taken me, you know, I, I started putting out music, you know, 15 years ago now. So part of the reason why it's taken me this long to have a solo album is because I was sort of obsessed with 
this idea of perfection that it was unattainable. And then I ended up putting out this album that is the complete opposite of everything I've ever aspired to do. It's just mm. very like, it's not very intentional and it's not very polished. For some reason, when I, when I find something that works or that I enjoy, I just kind of put everything into it until, until I suck all the fun out of it. <laughs> so that's the, <laughs> that's the negative. But I think it's, it's also like once all the smoke is cleared and I've kind of, you know, gotten everything I can get out of it, then I can go back and sort of figure out what I've actually learned from it and apply it mm. to, to what I'm doing creatively. Mm. Uh, so you spent some time traveling through West Africa and Europe. Uh, how did those travels help you connect the dots for how you could use tradition in a modern way to express yourself in music? When I was uh, traveling, I saw, especially in like places like um, like Senegal and uh, Ukraine or just Eastern Europe in general, I, f I think there's this... Uh, the the fact that like American music, which has this huge impact on the world, is sort of foreign to them, I think they use it in a different way because I don't. I think in in America there's a sort of uh, there's not a lot of respect for what's come before. Everyone just wants to move forward, which is very important. But you know, you go from the blues to rock to everything else that's happened in the last seventy years, and it's kind of just like you take what was done before and you create something new. But I saw something different in those countries because people always wanted to sort of keep the tradition involved in, 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 in their version of Western pop popular music, which is maybe it's kind of a convoluted way to answer it. But anyway, what I saw was these people found a way to take traditional music and make it modern, but it wasn't this sort of like it wasn't cheesy in any way, like, oh, let's take a blues song and put it over hip hop beats or whatever, you know? It was just like the tradition was kept alive without getting lost. And I think like, you know, in my case, I see the blues in a lot of modern music, but it's not it's not really uh, respected as the sort of beginning of everything, even though it's there. But I saw other cultures really paying homage to the, to the origins of, and the you mm. know, folk music. And what have you learned about the origins of blues that make it the best vehicle for you to like fulfill your mission in sharing the black experience in music? I don't think it's the best vehicle. I think it's probably the worst, which is part of the reason why I chose it or why I'm, I've, I'm at least pursuing it presently. And I've never said this before because I didn't. This is just an idea that's formulated in my head. So forgive me if it, if it doesn't make sense. But. I think whatever the blues is today, it's kind of been, you know, uh, frozen in time by, I think, some sort of like, you know, basically by like white people who had this fetish of what black creativity is supposed to be, you know, 60, 70 years ago. And I think it's been stuck there and it's not an accident. You know what I mean? I think if you want to talk about the black experience, in the blues, people are automatically going to stop listening. So I think that's my first challenge. And I don't think it's something, I don't think I'm doing it alone, but I certainly can't do it by myself. I think it's going to take, I think it's, there's more artists interested in changing the narrative than listeners right now, you know? 
So I feel like as soon as these artists break through and say, hey, this is what it means to be black and this is what the blues means to us. If we do manage to change anything, the people propping up this industry, if they walk away, there's going to be kind of nothing left, you know, and it's kind of weird. It's like you have to destroy this thing in order to sort of move on from it. But the blues, like I said, it's been stuck. It's been stuck in this way that didn't even like what the blues was at the last time. It really was a, a black art form. This is like it's been since the 50s, probably. Mm -hmm. That was a totally different. Not that much has changed, but it was still a different experience. And it was a lot of sort of there was a lot that the black community hadn't dealt with yet. And there's a lot that's mm -hmm. happened since then. So we can't just go back and say, let's pick up from there. And we also can't say, let's take it over from here. There's just this huge gap that we have to acknowledge. And it's just, I think that's where I've lost my train of thought. But I think I was making sense somewhere in there. <laughs> totally. And it seems like this is something that is going to take a long time, like years. Yeah, I don't think it will. I don't think it will happen, to be honest. I think there's going to be a few breakthrough artists every once in a while who try. But I think it's going to be something that we look back on. I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where we say, yes, this is it's the blues has been reclaimed or, you know, mm -hmm. you're not you're never going to go to a blues fest. This is me being a pessimist, but I don't think in my lifetime I'll go to a blues festival and see a, even a diverse audience. It's always going to be majority white just because of the damage that's been done in the last, you know, three generations. Hmm. So, OK, that's like a very interesting thing that you've just said and something that I notice is that it's easier to find like amazing BIPOC musicians in our genre right now. However, like like you just said, when I'm at festivals, when I'm at concerts, it's still a lot of white people listening to this kind of music. And I don't expect you to like have a solution because I don't know if there exactly is one. But how do your audiences look to you and how does that make you feel? You know, I really don't know, mostly because... Um, most of my career as Buffalo Nichols has been in the pandemic. But I think one thing I've always talked about, and this is something that has, has been true for me, whether I was, you know, going to punk shows as a kid or going to Americana shows now, I think if the space is not safe or comfortable for everybody and nobody does anything about it, that's going to be, that's the signal that you're sending, basically. Mm. So... If you go to a punk show and there's Nazis and nobody's outraged, if you go to a bluegrass festival and there's Confederate flags and nobody seems to mind, then you're sending this message to, you know, the few people of color who may be here like, oh, OK, I guess you guys, none of you want me here, even the ones who aren't outwardly racist through everyone here who says this is fine. You're all saying to me that I shouldn't be here. And over time, that keeps a pretty significant group of people from going back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's what has to change. I think, you know, the the bystanders have to really understand the, the impact that their silence has. So I agree with what you're saying. And I feel like there's like so many other um, there's so many other things to do in creating a safe space for like a safe black space for like folk and blues and, and roots music. Mm -hmm. um, is it like somebody has to start from scratch to make a safe space for a black audience for like an acoustic act like yourself or I think so. 
Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Like, it's, this is an awkward question. Okay, uh, sure. Cause, cause <laughs> I'll like, give you an awkward answer. Right, well, yeah, because, like, as a white person, it's, like, I can see the problem, but I also, like, don't know what to do about it, and I also don't think it's, like, my, my, uh, um, I'm not in a position where it should be, like, something that I want to try to fix, you know, but, and, and mm -hmm. I just, like, don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and that, again, it's one of those things that I, I don't know if anything really will be done about it, but I personally feel like it, you have to start from scratch, and I think you, people have to give up the idea of of commercial success that they really want to change things. Hmm. Because, you know, people have this sort of negative connotation now of a, of a safe space because of, I guess, the way people talk on the internet. Well, it's not about, it's not about any, uh, when, 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 I, when I use the term safe space, that's the bare minimum, just a place where I can be comfortable. And whether it's actual, you know, threats of violence or just like, being the only black person there and having people make jokes they think are funny about it. That's something that you obviously can't control. So I think, but you, the way that you can control it is by saying, I'm going to be fine having a career where I play to 40, 50 people a night. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of, not to say you're going to control who's listening to your music, but if you start with those 40 people and every time you add another five or 10 people, these people will come into your shows and say, okay, I see the vibe here. I'm not going to mess it up by, you know, making a stupid joke or by, you know, being an, an idiot. <laughs> and I think there's a ceiling on that. You know, you're not going to get super far trying to keep out idiots because there's a lot of them. <laughs> you know, if you want to if you want to put a mass appeal, you're going to have a lot of jerks in your audience and your fan base. And I think that's the, the trade off artists have to make. Yeah, I want to hear more about um, the like not wanting to be like a commercial artist and not wanting to turn a huge profit. You said like um, the the blues. You said I figured out it's not a huge commercial thing, but it still has value. And whenever a culture gets turned for profit, you end up with gatekeepers who decide what belongs and what does not. Um, so like, what has been, you know, talk a little bit more about your relationship to like the commercialization in the folk roots blues americana world and how that might be a deterrent to inclusion well yeah i think a lot of our folk and blues heroes weren't commercially successful in their time and you know they've gotten this huge uh legacy since they've you know passed or retired and i think a lot of people forget that you know you think somebody like woody guthrie i can't imagine that he had a huge commercial success in his lifetime. And I think that was probably intention, not intentional, but I think you listen to his songs. A lot of people take his songs the wrong way, but he was writing folk music with a message. And I think I, sometimes I get this feeling like people put in a message because they want some kind of points ultimately to, to profit from it. And I think it's really hard to make a real statement when you're concerned about your bottom line. And I think that is, that's been the frustrating thing for me being in, you know, having spent so much time as an Americana artist. I've always just been ready to risk everything to make a statement, like financially, physical safety. I've, I've put myself in a lot of risky positions to, to, to speak my mind. 
And I found myself sometimes, it's hard to know who's really on your side because a lot of people will, will carry that banner when it's convenient for them. But at the end of the day, they're actually just trying to be famous. And that's, that kind of puts Americana, it's kind of Americana in a nutshell. It's like late of the past, you know, five years, they kind of, the genre seems to take on different issues when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, if they want to, if people in Americana want to make a profit, they go for the white guys singing songs about nothing. Yep. So you have said, so I'm not sure if this is a quote, but it's like in your bio, um, black stories aren't being told responsibly in the blue genre anymore. Um, so can you explain what that means and how in turn you are um, either trying to or are responsibly approaching these stories? Yeah, that was kind of a... I was trying to make a point about something specific that was happening to me. And, you know, I guess I can say it because I don't think anybody... Um, I don't know how many people will make it this far into the podcast, but... Um, <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a very slow talker. They might have been turned off. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think some of the songs in this album I'm not really proud of. And I was getting some feedback... And I'm, I got a little suspicious and I was like, some of these songs are kind of cliche and stereotypical. And I think that's why you like them. And I think if you want to be a blues artist, you know, if you want anyone to know who you are in this, in, in this industry, the blues industry, you have to make white men feel comfortable. I think me saying a song about how I'm bad with money and I like to drink is exactly what a lot of these people want to hear. And I think I'm, you know, almost like ashamed of myself that I let it get to the point where I put it on an album that I put out. But I'm also like understanding a lot of the people who came before me, I went through the exact same thing and I can't judge them because I see how hard it is to actually stand up for yourself as a black artist in a white industry. But then there are also so many artists who do it to themselves, you know, without any coaxing from an outside force. But at the end of the day, the end result is a lot of songs about black people that don't really, that aren't for black people. And I think that is something that I'm still trying to, you know, be better about. And I would like to see that change. And yeah, that's, that's what that's about. So your solo project is called Buffalo Nichols and it's a pretty significant name for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's just a, I mean, there's a reason why there's 700 bands with Buffalo in it. That's like a cool (laughs) word. (laughs) But I remember being a kid and being fascinated by the the Buffalo Soldiers and they used to make like little uh, dioramas with the little figurines and stuff. And I just thought they were like a really cool, just the image and the the idea. And then I came to find out find out some years later that that was uh, my my grandfather was in the Korean War and he was in an all black infantry and they were called the Buffalo Soldiers as well. It was yeah. like their battle cry was Buffalo. So it had this. It just felt like a really powerful word and like a, you know, that's kind of what it meant to me. Hmm. Thank you for your previous answer about uh, the songs on the album. And so like writing the songs on on the new album, it seems like you just kind of like let the songs flow out and you didn't overthink or over edit. Does that sound correct? Yeah, that's something that I've recently, you know, past three years or so started doing. I used to write very slowly and I just wouldn't put the word down on the page unless I was sure it was right. But
but lately I've been just trying to just write and just let let the songs exist before I, you know, before I judge them. Hmm. So how did that experience of capturing the songs in such a raw form help connect you with your gut instincts or your intuition? Well, you know what? I don't think it did. Because I think after this, I'm going to go back to the painstaking, slow writing process. Because I think that it's not just like being, it's not just overthinking. Well, it is overthinking, but I overthink. So I think it's more natural for me to write that way. Um, I think some of the songs were sort of, you know, almost stream of consciousness. And I think that's fine for some people. But, And I would like for people to know that you don't have to do everything perfectly. But I also would like to, people to know that I care deeply about songwriting and it's not something that I take lightly so I think this just like saying whatever I think just to get a song done thing it's gotten me here I guess but it's not what I want to do moving forward you know hmm. do you want to geek out about Eric Bibb now yes of course anytime <laughs> yeah um I saw that he was a, an artist that you like would like to collaborate at some point with yeah he, he like are you a fan yeah Okay, yeah, I like his new album quite a bit. Yeah, I haven't heard it yet. I've actually been blocking out new music just from a habit from when I was writing the album, but I haven't listened to a new album in a well, while. But that's there you go. List. Yes, that's going to be my first. Go put it on, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember, you know, I've been listening to Eric Big since I was a, a teenager, and he he came to Milwaukee. Or no, he didn't come to Milwaukee. He came to Minneapolis, and my mom went, and I didn't go for some reason, and then... At the time, I didn't even know that he lived in Sweden. And I was like, I held he back. And he wasn't back for like 10 years. I was like, man, I really should have gone. <laughs> but I just, I kind of, when I first started playing solo, like I would play at like restaurants and stuff. And 80% of my set was just Eric Bibb songs. You know, it's a big part of the way that I play and write now. God, you guys got to play a show together or something, or at least like go hang out, have a cup of coffee or something, if you drink coffee. Yeah, he's been really nice and like approachable. I um, I was on tour in Europe once, and I was uh, going to be in Berlin the same day as him. And I, I asked uh, if he needed an opener, and I think his wife responded and said he doesn't have an opener, but if you want to just come to the show and hang out, then he'd be cool with that. And I said, that's amazing. And then I ended up uh, getting, it was the long story. We didn't get paid for our show, so we didn't go, and we were depressed. But again, I, uh, next time I get the chance, I'm going to make sure I catch him live. Yeah. Uh, on his new album, I think on the first track, there's a guy playing upright bass with him who also played with his dad. Is it Leon oh, cool. Bibb? Who's like, yeah. he, Leon Bibb was like a Broadway musical theater mm. musician. But yeah, I'd like to, I should probably get him, get him in an interview. He's just, I bet yeah. he has a million he stories. Yeah, he seems like a fascinating person. Yeah, cool. Well, Carl, before we let you go, will you do the lightning round? Oh, that's just my speed. Fast thing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. What is the first song you learned on the guitar? Oh, I think that must have been uh, Blitzkrieg Bop, the Ramon song. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay, what is your karaoke song? Uh... My karaoke days are behind me, but I used to do. Um, I used to do sitting on the dock of the bay. That was it. Ooh, nice. Dogs or cats or something else? Oh, definitely dogs. I love dogs. Even though you're more of a cat. 
Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I'm a little confused. <laughs> <laughs> what is your coffee order? Um, it's usually uh, just uh, black coffee, and then frustration when they tell me, "Oh, we don't actually do that." It's weird. I don't know if you what? noticed this. I okay, whenever I go to Starbucks, I'm like, "Can I get a coffee?" And they're like, "Oh, we stopped brewing coffee at four o'clock." <laughs> Something weird. Like oh. That. Hey, maybe That's I'm, weird. Maybe I just have a really bad Starbucks in my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That has never happened to me, and I hope it never does, because holy crap. <laughs> um, who was who your first celebrity crush? First celebrity crush? I gotta go way back to probably, like, Ginger Spice or something like that. The Spice Girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who is the nicest musician you've ever met? I think I've met a lot of nice musicians. It's great, but I would say Ruthie Foster. Oh yeah! Oh, yeah, she's the best. Really good, good pick. Um, first album you bought with your own money? I think it was Corn Freak on the Leash. Oh, it's called Follow the Leader. That's the album. Oh my god! Yeah, it's been like '99 or something. 1999. Yeah. Oh god! What was yours? Since you sighed like that. <laughs> Um, Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I had a few that years in my before. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, what was your first concert? Please don't say corn. Oh, I wish. No, my first, my first concert was uh, the Used. I was a, I came up in the emo era. So. Oh my god, you are yes. really blowing my mind right now. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Uh. You know, I've never, people won't believe me when I say this, but I've never actually listened to a Rolling Stones song from beginning to end. Like, I'm aware of them, but I've never put on a Rolling Stones song. So I gotta say the Beatles. Flying or Invisibility, you chose... Flying. Flying. Okay, and then this is the last question. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I think the first time I ever went to, uh, like, I guess it's called Transylvania. It's the region of Romania. That's probably the most beautiful place I've seen. It's green hills and all types of rivers and fields of canola, I think. I don't know, but it's beautiful. That sounds like Pittsburgh. Oh, well, maybe I'd like Pittsburgh, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, congratulations on your new album, even though you don't like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There's always next time. <laughs> yeah, you're... Yeah, that's right. I'll get a second chance, I'm sure. That's what yeah. the music industry does. Right? I I really like chance. it, and I found it I found it to be an album that I put on, and I can't do anything else other than listen to the songs on it. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, uh, and you're a sick guitar player. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do have mixed emotions about it, which I think I have mixed emotions about anything that I produce, but I I feel like I I tried. I could have tried harder, but I. I gave it enough. You tried so, enough. Yeah. Yeah. Good enough. Um, thanks for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you. And maybe I'll see you in Pittsburgh. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Basic Folk This Week, produced by John Nungesser. Our music composed by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please share with a friend. You can find all of the episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts or at basicfolk.com. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.